All right, well, good morning, River City. It's good to be with you. My name is Brand. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if you are new or visiting, just want to say welcome. Glad that you would join us this morning. If there's anything that we can do to serve you or help you get connected to the community here at River City, we'd love to be able to do that. Come find me or somebody else that looks like they know what's going on around here. Uh, we're not scary people. We would love to get to know you, and uh, so we look forward to that. Uh, for the past few months, we have been taking a look at a series. We've been walking through the fruit of the Spirit, which is found in Galatians chapter 5. And the fruit of the Spirit is kind of the description uh, of the kind of transformed life that increasingly characterizes a Christian as being evidenced, it says, by uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And, and from the beginning, what we've tried to highlight is the reality is that the fruit of the Spirit is not merely some list of virtues that the Bible is just kind of puts on a list of things we need to start working really hard at attaining or, or being striving to be characterized by. Instead, the, the fruit of the Spirit is actually something that is supernaturally produced in us when the transforming power of the gospel takes deep root in our hearts. In other words, believing and responding to the truths of the gospel, to the, to the person and the work of Jesus, is the one thing that not only can, but inevitably will produce the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And so as we examine our hearts and our lives over the course of our series, the, the goal is not just to get you to think, where am I lacking in the fruit of the Spirit so I can work hard at trying to produce that in my life? No, instead, the, the invitation is to ask ourselves the question when we see an area of the spiritual fruit in our lives lacking, it's to, it's to ask ourselves, what is it about the gospel? What is it about the person and the work of Jesus that hasn't yet taken deep root in my heart? What is it about who he is and all that he has done for me that actually, that I'm missing, that, that I need to dwell on, that I need to allow to take deep root in my heart so that the fruit of the Spirit is what is naturally and inevitably produced in my life? As we studied the fruit of love, as we began our series, we saw how it's only when you encounter and dwell on God's costly and sacrificial love towards you that you will increasingly be characterized by a kind of love for God and for others that's not based on a perceived worthiness or, or just merely reciprocal benefit or relative ease, but a kind of love for God and others that is, that's uh, consistent even when it's hard when it's costly, when it requires sacrifice. As we studied the fruit of the spirit of patience, we, we saw how it's the degree to which you recognize and are humbled by how patient, how long-suffering, how forbearing, how, how forgiving God has been towards you, that that'll be the degree to which you are characterized by patience with others and patience in the midst of difficult circumstances. You see, and every week the goal has been to highlight the gospel roots that produce the Spirit's fruit in our lives. And so the same is true this week as we come to the final aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. We're going to see how self-control, in addition to all the others, will inevitably and increasingly characterize us when the gospel takes deep root in our hearts. And so to that end, let's pray. We'll dive into our study this morning. 
God, uh, we are thankful for you and for your word, thankful that we would get to gather together to study it this morning, and we just humbly ask that you would be meeting us in our need for you in our study. God, I need you to empower me to teach and preach what is right and true, and you need, uh, we need you to empower us to be able to hear and respond to your word. And so, God, we just, we want as we do every week, we want to come humbly to your word, asking that you would meet us in it, and as well, waiting expectantly, because we know that you love to do just that. And so, God, for our good and for your glory, would you meet us in your word this morning, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, like I said, this morning we are talking about the spiritual fruit of self-control, which, if we're honest, is a super popular topic for like four or five days at the beginning of every year. And after that, nobody wants to talk about it at all, right? Because your, all, of your, your, all of your self-control reserves have run dry by the end of week one, right? And nobody wants to talk about the, the resolutions that they made or, or whatever is going on. Many people, I think, look at self-control kind of like a dentist appointment, right? It's like, you know you need to go, but you do not want to deal with it, right? Like you're just trying to avoid that. Uh, others, I think, in our world increasingly don't even see self-control as necessary at all. We, we live in a world that increasingly views self-control more as a vice than as a virtue. See, our world often sees uh, self-control as the enemy of the most sacred virtue of all, which is self-expression. You see, people think that what we need is, isn't self-control, but is self-liberation, that it's only when, we're, when we completely embrace who we are and, and, and that we'll be able to be truly happy and free. But the truth that we, three, that we see throughout the Bible, and which, by the way, scientific research overwhelmingly affirms, is that self-control, people who live, uh, who are characterized by self-control actually lead freer, happier, and more meaningful lives. See, self-control is not the path to a life of boredom and misery and drudgery. Self-control is, is actually a path to a life of freedom and of flourishing. Because what happens is self-control not only empowers us, enables us to do what is right, it enables us to do what is actually good and best, not only for us but for others as well. And in other words, self-control helps us to become the people that God's made and called us to be. Now, if you're here when we began our series with, with the fruit of love, I, I highlighted how I don't think it's an accident how Paul begins with the, the fruit of love first. And, and as we wrap up our series here, as taking a look at the spiritual fruit of self-control, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that he ends with self-control either. You see, because like love, self-control is a foundational virtue. What, that doesn't mean that it's more important than any of the other ones in the list but just that the others rely upon it. They're built upon it. You see, God's word, the spiritual fruit of faithfulness, can you be faithful to your spouse without self-control? Can you be patient with others without self-control? Can, can you be at peace with others, even your enemies, without self-control? Can you be joyful, not just, not just happy, but truly characterized by joy without self-control? No. You see, self-control is instrumental to all of those other things. It, it is fundamental. It facilitates the acquisition and the development of those things in our lives. You see, without self-control, we're just destined to live kind of a stagnant life of slavery to our own ultimately unfulfilling desires. You see, but the truth is when God, by his spirit, causes the gospel to take deep root in our heart, not only will we, will we be increasingly characterized by self-control, we'll actually be freed and empowered to become the people that God's made us to be. 
And trust me, that is good news for you and for me, and it's good news for others. Now, uh, before we dive into our study, I just want to mention that I was incredibly well served in my preparation for our sermon this morning by a book I read called Your Future Self Will Thank You. It's written by an author named Drew Dick, and I think it just does an incredibly helpful job of surveying not only the biblical foundations for self-control, but, but also the corresponding scientific research that, that affirms pretty much everything that the Bible has to say about self-control, and, and it helps as well to take some practical next steps with some of that. So, if you find something especially helpful or insightful in the sermon this morning, just know I can read, right? And I'm not some geniusly brilliant person. I can just read other people's good thoughts as well. So just trying not to take credit for that happening. So anyway, so how does the Bible talk about self-control? Well, I think the first thing to note is that the Bible overwhelmingly talks about self-control as something that is incredibly important, Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28, I think does just a really helpful and concise job of highlighting that reality. It says this, it says, like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. And for us, we're like, I don't know, my wall doesn't have cities, what's the big deal, right? But in the ancient world, walls around your city were incredibly important. People would build massive walls around their cities and control them or patrol them with armed guards. And if your city had no walls or your walls were broken down, then you were always vulnerable to attack. You had no way of keeping uh, your uh, your you were open, you had no way of keeping your people or your possessions safe. And and so a city's walls were critical to creating an environment that not only was safe but was secure. And was stable. Proverbs here is saying that self-control is so important because without it, we're, we are vulnerable, defenseless. We're, we're unsafe, we're insecure. At any moment, we could be attacked and plundered, but not just by outside forces. You see, in the Bible, repeatedly highlights the, the sinister nature of our own desires that are opposed to God and to his desires and his purposes. And so the Bible highlights the importance of self-control. And scientific research affirms the importance of self-control as well. In, in the 1960s, there was this incredibly famous study uh, conducted by a guy named Walter Mischel. It's now kind of famously known as the marshmallow experiment. And basically what happened is that he uh, would offer children uh, a marshmallow, not like a creepy from a van marshmallow situation, but like in a lab, right? It's science, right? Anyways, so he would offer kids a marshmallow and he would say, if you, you can have this marshmallow, but if you can hold out for 15 minutes, I'll give you two of them. Shocker, not many kids made it the whole 15 minutes, right? But there are varying degrees of self-control that those children have. And, and it's not a surprise that children lack self-control, right? Like if there was a marshmallow in front of me, I'd be real tempted to eat it, right? Um, that wasn't the real discovery, the real importance of that study. It would actually come years later when Mitchell followed up with these children and he found with remarkable consistency that those who demonstrated more self-control were dramatically outpacing their peers in almost every area of life. Not only did they have higher test scores and higher education levels, they were pro less prone to drug use and abuse. And there was even more intangible things, like they were um, more popular and they had greater levels of happiness. And see, Michel's marshmallow test, it changed the field of psychology dramatically because it showed that, that unlike many of the other things people thought were determining factors in people's lives, self-control more than any of those other things was a determining factor and it virtually affected every area of people's lives. 
And that should come as no surprise to us, though, right? Because thousands of years before Mitchell did a study, God's word through the wisdom of Solomon showed us that self-control is really important. So what about the actual definition of self-control? Well, as we've seen throughout our study, the way that the world around us often defines the various virtues we look at in the fruit of the Spirit, God's Word often defines them in a different kind of way. Um, researchers, they tend to define self-control as the ability to resist negative impulses or to delay gratification. And when the Bible mentions self-control, it, it has something much bigger in mind than just that. There are, there are actually four Greek words. When you just look at the New Testament, there's, there's actually four different Greek words that are translated as self-control. And each of them, I think, helps to give us a little bit of a fuller picture of, of what the Bible is talking about when it's talking about the fruit of the spirit of self-control. The first is, is the word nepho, which literally means to be sober or to abstain from drunkenness. And it's used figuratively in places like 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, verse 8, as a call to a vigilant watchfulness against the intoxicating effects of sin and against the, the allure of the devil's schemes. This word helps to highlight how a big part of, of self-control begins by proactively watching out for temptation and sin ahead of time so you can avoid it altogether in the first place. The next word is uh, halinagoyeo, which means to bridle or restrain. James uses this word in chapter 1, verse 26, as well in chapter 3, verse 2. He uses it to describe the difficult yet crucial task of controlling our tongues and our bodies. In other words, what we say and what we do. And he highlights how like a horse or a ship, our desires are big and powerful. And if we're not careful to restrain and direct them, they can cause great damage. The third word the New Testament translates to self-control is the word sophron, which conveys the idea of being stable or balanced rather than impulsive. In the letters of 1 Timothy and Titus, the apostle Paul, he's writing to these young pastors and he's teaching them about what to look for in, in people who he, they, he wants to train and equip for leadership. And he says to avoid appointing leaders who are impulsive, avoid those who are leaders who are prone to drunkenness or fighting or arguing. Instead, these young pastors, there's to look for people uh, to appoint to leadership who are characterized by stability and by balance, people who aren't easily riled up, people who aren't swayed by emotion or popular opinion. And lastly, the word that's translated to self-control in Galatians 5 and the list of the fruit of the Spirit is the Greek word ingratia, which is the combination of two other words, ego, which means self, and kratia, which means command or mastery. And so this aspect of self-control is about having command or mastery of your inner self. It's, it's the idea that you're not mastered or controlled by your own desires and passions, but instead that you have power or control over them. They don't rule you, you rule over them. When you look at these various aspects of the Bible's description or definition of self-control, what you see is that it's a lot more than just resisting, it's resisting negative impulses or just delaying gratification. Yes, self-control involves the ability to resist doing things that we shouldn't do, but, but it also has this positive aspect about it, right? About being characterized by doing the things that we should, in theological terms, self-control has to do with guarding against both sins of omission, that's doing, or sins of commission, that's doing things we shouldn't, and sins of omission, which is not doing the things that we should be doing. So in other words, self-control is the, it's the ability to choose to do what is right, even when we don't want to, no matter the costs or the consequences. 
It's about choosing to do what is right, even when we don't want to. And before we move on, it's important to highlight that, that the, what is right, choosing to do what is right, it's not a subjective matter. It's not a self-determined thing. See, when it comes to the spiritual fruit of self-control, the right thing has been determined by God himself, and he's shown us what is right and wrong through his word, and he speaks to us by his spirit and through our conscience. And so self-control then is, is about submitting every decision and choice we make to him and then listening and obeying to him. You see, self-control ultimately requires, what it ultimately requires isn't tremendous self-effort. It isn't just beefed up willpower. It isn't just, it isn't just more effort, but rather it's surrender. You see, mastering yourself is only accomplished when we are first mastered by God himself. And so the question we need to wrestle with when we think about what's keeping us from being characterized by self-control is who or what are we surrendering to? In the classic book, uh, Dr. Strange, uh, the, the book of Dr. Str- the case, uh, the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, not Dr. Strange, that's Marvel. Anyways, um, Dr. Jekyll, he creates this potion, right? And it could either turn him utterly good, that's the Jekyll side, or utterly bad, or the evil, that's the Hyde side. And as time goes on, what happens is that the, the, the drug that he makes, it does, it's not as effective anymore. And so what he realizes is that he's going to have to choose who he wants to be. He writes this, he says, To cast in my lot with Jekyll was to die to those appetites which I had long secretly indulged and had of late begun to pamper. And to cast in with Hyde was to die to a thousand interests and aspirations and to become at a blow and forever despised and friendless. Strange as my circumstances were, the terms of this debate are as old and commonplace as man. For much the same inducements and alarms cast the die for any tempted and trembling sinner. You see in that story what, what's going on is that Dr. Jekyll is wrestling with the reality of who he wants to surrender to. Does he want to surrender to who God has made him to be and, and who he should be? Or does he want to surrender to his own passions and his own desires? Self-control ultimately is about surrender. You see, we often look at self-control as a problem that we need to solve by our own effort, right? I mean, it's literally called self-control, right? So it'd be easy to assume that. But the reality is, is when, when you look at it that way, you, well, you'll, all, you'll always, will endlessly fall short. You'll just keep failing because no matter how much you have, no matter how much willpower you have, your willpower will run out. It is a finite resource. And this is just, as an aside, mere willpower is a counterfeit of self-control, Right? Self-control is described as a fruit of the Spirit. It's something God supernaturally produces in you. Willpower is just your natural effort to keep doing whatever it is you're doing. You see, what the Bible abundantly makes clear is that self-mastery is not something that can be developed apart from God. Yes, you can grow your willpower. It often is like a muscle that you can strengthen, right? But, but no matter how strong it becomes, you will always see, realize that your, your willpower is always a finite resource that will run out. You see, what we need is a power that does not run dry. What we need is a power that doesn't run out. What we need is God's spirit empowering us. And that begins with surrendering and following him 
Luke chapter 4 describes how at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he, w- he went out into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan for 40 days. And, and there have been all kinds of sermons written about, about how Jesus just knew the truth and he quoted scripture back to Satan and that's how he overcame temptation. But, but anybody, uh, you and I, I think, I think we pretty well know, right? It's not the amount of Bible verses you have memorized that like, keeps you from falling into temptation, Right? That's, that's, not, that's not the thing that does it. So what is it? What, what is it that empowers us to be self-controlled and rather than ruled by our desires or temptations? Well, Luke begins the chapter not just by saying that Jesus went into the wilderness, but that Jesus, full of the Spirit, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. You see, he was being empowered by the Spirit of God. And I don't mean to say that we can't exercise or grow in self, some level of self-control. In fact, we're actually going to talk a little bit more about that next week as we wrap up our series in the fruit of the Spirit. But what I'm saying is that the fruit of the Spirit of self-control is not something you can ultimately manifest in yourself. You'll always fall short. Our willpower is a finite resource that will always run dry, but God's power never does. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says that God's divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. In fact, Scripture says that God's power, in fact, shines through most clearly in our own weaknesses. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 says, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. Paul responds to God's words. He says, therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ might rest upon me. See, that leads us to the, the gospel roots that produce the Spirit's fruit in our life. You see, if willpower is never gonna be enough to be characterized by self-control, how do we become characterized by it? How, how, do, how is that possible? Well, Paul's words in 2 Corinthians, they, they point us to the reality that has everything to do with God's grace. Titus chapter 2 and 11 verse 14, he reads this way. So important that you see this. Verse 11, he says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. And it's God's grace that teaches us, he says, to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify us for himself, a people who are his very own. Did you see that? Paul writing to Titus, he says, it's God's grace. It's his unmerited forgiveness that teaches, that trains us to be self-controlled. Not not just to avoid ungodliness, he says, but to live upright, godly lives, to to be people who who not only not do what is wrong, but who do what is right. You see, the reality is that God's grace is utterly transformative. It it woos and softens and draws and transforms us. You see, it it famously changed the heart of a cruel slave trader who marveled at the amazing grace of a God who would save a wretch like him. See, the reality is that when you encounter God's grace, when you encounter his unmerited forgiveness, the last thing that you want to do is run out and sin. Instead, you start to long to give yourself back in holiness and worship unto God, the God who who would come and save you from your own sin and your own penalty of sin, which is death. 
See, that's why the pattern in, in pretty much every one of Paul's letters in Scripture is that he always spends the first half of the letter recounting and heralding the good news of the gospel. He spends the first half of every one of his letters reminding the people about the, about the reality of sin and about the magnitude of God's grace and about how good it is, all that Jesus has done for them and about God's rescuing work in the gospel. And then, only then, after heralding the good news of the gospel, does, does he go on to give instruction about what needs to change in their lives and, and what needs to be done differently and how they need to keep growing. Because what Paul realizes is that the reality is, is that the good news of the gospel and of God's lavish grace is the one thing that motivates and empowers us to live lives of obedience unto him. To live lives of surrender unto him rather than surrender to our own passions and our own desires. It's God's grace that transforms us. And when it comes to self-control researchers, they, they talk about the fresh start effect. And basically the fresh start effect is that the idea that when people think they're given a fresh start, their behavior significantly changes, it improves. They're, they're much more motivated towards keeping resolutions or actions. And fresh starts can be powerful. We see that at the beginning of every new year, don't we? See, but the message of the gospel is that we have been given the ultimate fresh start. You see, God's grace not only wipes our slates clean and forgives us of our sin, it makes us altogether new people. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. 1 John chapter 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You see, so often what happens is we think that in order to change, we kind of just need to wallow in our guilt and shame for a while so we feel bad enough about it. You see, but that never works. All that does is send us into a spiral of more sin and shame. See, the one thing that empowers and motivates us to a life of obedience and worship unto God is when we revel in his grace made known to us in Jesus. You see, God's grace his lavish, abundant grace. It motivates us to respond to him with a humble surrender. You see, what we're doing every week when we take communion is we're reminding ourselves about God's lavish grace shown to us, his, his lavish grace exemplified to us on the cross. You see, taking communion, it doesn't make you right with God. It doesn't change your status or your standing with him. Instead, it's a chance for us to remember to remind ourselves about God's abundant and lavish grace, his unmerited forgiveness. And so that in remembering his grace, we might be filled with all the power and motivation we need to live lives, rejecting our own passions and desires and instead choosing to follow his. And so as we sing and as we worship and as we remember the gospel together in song this morning, if you've put your trust in Jesus' grace, if your hope and your reliance is on his forgiveness, not your own effort, then whenever you're ready, take communion. If you miss the elements there on the table in the foyer when you came in, you can grab one on your way out. But if not yet, if you're still here this morning and you're figuring out who Jesus is to you and if you even think you need his grace or even want it, I just want to encourage you to, to hold off on taking communion. You are welcome here. In fact, this church was begun so that you might be able to explore what it means to follow Jesus, but... The only way to bear the spiritual fruit of self-control is when you respond in faith to God's grace towards you. 
You see, God's not after, he's not after a ritual, he's not after tradition, he's after your heart. So receive him before you take communion. Lastly, I just, I just want to close with this this morning. I, I want to encourage you. I know when it comes to self-control, it can be easy for me to get discouraged. If I'm honest, when, as I began to study for this series, I was not looking forward to this one. Because if I'm honest, self-control is one of the areas I feel like I struggle with. It's, tr- it's challenging for me. I can easy to think that I'm stuck, that, I just, I, that, that real change isn't going to happen in that area. And the truth is that not only that God, God can change, but that he does change people. And we have countless examples of that in our own lives, but throughout scripture as well. I think Peter is probably one of the best examples of that kind of transformation. Peter, he's kind of like the poster child for bad self-control, right? He's like the poster child for that. He has all these amazing convictions. He, he knows what is right, and yet over and over and over again, he fails to do what he knows is the right thing to do. Or he speaks up and says stupid things when he knows he should be quiet. You see, but what happens is then you read the letters that he writes to the churches in First and Second Peter, and what you see is a man who is altogether different one who's been transformed by God's grace and his power. You see uh, a leader who, is, who God has used to become a pillar in the early church and who has grown in grace and godliness and who is someone who is now teaching others about self-control. And so I want to encourage you, as I was encouraged this week, don't get discouraged. Keep stumbling towards Jesus in your weaknesses and in your failings, in your lack of self-control. Keep coming back to him to his grace and to his mercy and to his forgiveness. You see, that's the one thing that will empower you to live a life characterized by self-control is when his spirit causes the, the good news of his grace and of the gospel to take deep root in your heart and so that what you long for more than anything is to live a life of worship unto him rather than pleasing your own passions and desires. So keep coming back to him, knowing that he loves you, that he wants to transform you by his power into the person that he has made you to be for your good and ultimately for his glory as he transforms you to become like him. So with that in mind, let's pray. God, thank you for our time in your word. Thank you for the reminder to us that the fruit of the spirit is self-control. And that when the gospel takes deep root in our heart, we are characterized by being a people who, who are not driven and ruled by our passions and desires, but, a, but rather a passionate desire to love and obey you, God. God, as well, we come together this morning just admitting to you that uh, all too often, God, we are ruled by those things rather than you. That we wrestle with that, we struggle with that, God. And so we ask that you would, by your spirit, God, cause the good news of your grace made known to us in Jesus to be beautiful and captivating, to be a a truth that captures our affections and our hearts and so that the thing that drives us is a love for you rather than a love for ourselves. God, we cannot change without you. There will never be enough willpower in us. Instead, what we need is your spirit empowering us to live a life of worship unto you. And so, God, for uh, by your grace, in your power, for our good, and for your great glory, we ask that you would do that in us. We pray, amen.